Well, this is a really uh, exciting week at Christ Fellowship. Uh, a lot is happening. I don't think I see A.J. and Shalan. So I stand corrected. But A.J. and Shalan had their uh, baby. And so I will wait for, for them to do the honors and, and, and introduce their little one to you. So thankful for your prayers on their behalf as they waited many months. And now we have more on the way. So we're excited about that. We're also excited that the Smiths are home. And uh, whenever the Smiths leave, Christ Fellowship is just not the same, wouldn't you say? And today also is... Is it okay if I tell him, Pat? Oh, I just did, didn't I? It's Pat's birthday. So happy birthday to Pat. We're really glad that you both are back. Speaking of children, I, I will never forget the, the moment when our children were born. Uh, the birth of your first child is an experience like none other. If you're a mom or a dad, you know that it is an absolutely unbelievable experience. Most of you know that I faint at the sight of blood. Uh, I remember, I think Rick's here. Rick, Rick, Rick. Do you remember Rick? Yeah, Beth remembers. Rick might not remember. Uh, I went to uh, have a word of prayer with with Rick in the hospital. It's been almost two years ago. Man. And I I remember, I'll just tell you what I was thinking. I was thinking, well, here I am. I'm doing good. And usually when the nurse uh, does the IV, I say, well, that's my time to leave. And I just really, I wanted to be there for Rick at this moment and for Beth. And so I just thought to myself, I'm just going to stick it out. Everything's going to be good. And so they did the IV and I was just like, my word is a miracle. I'm doing great. And, uh, and then I prayed, I prayed a short prayer and I, I opened my eyes and I could just, I could just feel it. And I remember what Beth said to me. She goes, no, it was Rick. Rick goes, pastor, are you okay? Now he's the patient, right? I'm the strong one. I could feel the sweat just pouring down my face, and I, I just about did a face plant. So that's a good memory, Rick and Beth, that I shared with you. And so while I am very squeamish, I, I just decided to, uh, to muscle up and, and be a man when my children were born, and I was there from start to finish. Uh, I do have to say that when Jereen had her epidural, yeah, that's another story. But for the actual birth... I did good, and it was an exciting, exciting time. One minute you're married, the next minute you are in the hospital with your wife, and your wife is giving birth to your children. There's no question, I think you'll agree with me on this, that the birth of a child is indeed a mind-boggling reality. But this mind-boggling reality gives rise to some very important and momentous responsibilities. Every parent now is charged with leading and feeding and protecting and nurturing and training and discipling their children. The analogy now fits very nicely for us as we consider the Christian life. For the Christian life, just like parents, is filled with mind-boggling realities mind-boggling truths, and these mind-boggling truths give rise to a whole series of uh, responsibilities, and such is the case in the passage before us today. After helping his disciples, the Lord Jesus, as we learned last week, he helped his disciples understand what I refer to as the pathology of hate. And Jesus now uh, transitions, he moves from the pathology of hate to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. 
Several of you, many of you, actually had the opportunity to come together last quarter in Veritas as we participated in a class on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And in that class, we addressed what I would like to consider the the tragic marginalization of the Holy Spirit in this generation. And it is to the shame of many, many Baptists that the marginalization of the Holy Spirit uh, happened for the most part in Baptist churches. We learn that to our great shame, the Holy Spirit has either been ignored or even disregarded altogether in some churches. I like to consider Christ Fellowship as a church who, who breaks the mold, if you will. I like to consider Christ Fellowship as a church who places a great deal of emphasis on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ now addresses the importance of the Holy Spirit in this particular passage. In what amounts to two short verses, he packs a very powerful punch. And the truth that he unpacks for us in John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, will indeed set the stage for where we will turn our attention to next week. And so the title of the message is A Mind-Boggling Reality. And I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to John chapter 15. Lord willing, we will finish this section of Scripture and move on next week to chapter 16. Will you stand with me out of respect for the authority? of sacred scripture. John chapter 15 verses 26 and 27. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Will you pray with me? Uh, Now, Father, as we uh, near the end of this chapter, I want to thank you for all that you have been teaching us in your word. This morning, I pray that you would uh, enable us by your grace and by the power of your spirit. I pray that we would uh, tremble at your word as we're instructed in Isaiah chapter 66. I pray that we would come with uh, a measure of uh, uh, respect the authority of your word, that we uh, would recognize this is the infallible, authoritative, inerrant word of God. And so I pray that we would learn uh, new and fresh and exciting lessons about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Forgive us, God, corporately or individually, if we have ever marginalized the third member of the Godhead. We want to uh, walk by the power of the Spirit. We want to surrender to the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul said so many years ago. And so uh, we ask that you would do a mighty, mighty work of grace in our hearts today as we pray each week. In Jesus' name, amen. With your Bible open this morning, I want to draw your attention to verse 26, to the very first word. I'm assuming that most of you, if not all of you, uh, despite the wide variety in translations, will see that this verse, in verse 26, begins with the word, but. 
Generally, when we run into the word but, B-U-T, that is a a signpost word, as I like to call it. It is a, a word that points to a transition, and it's a word that, in this case, moves uh, to a subject change. You remember last week that Jesus addressed the, the matter of the what I call the pathology of hate. Now he's going to move from uh, the hatred that the world expresses to the followers of Jesus Christ. And he's going to shift to a totally different subject. Once again, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. This morning we will come face to face with uh, what I am struck with is a mind-boggling reality. And once we look at the mind-boggling reality, we will proceed to discover what I'd like to to phrase the momentous responsibility. And so there is a, a pattern, if you will. There's a tempo, if you will, as we learn things in the mind and, and send those realities to our hearts. Then we are called to do something with our hands and our feet and our tongues and our mouths. And we'll see what the Lord Jesus calls us, indeed commands us to do, once we discover, first, the mind-boggling reality of the Holy Spirit. Once again, verse 26, but... There's that transition word. When, future tense, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The mind-boggling reality now of the Holy Spirit is not just introduced, it is reintroduced as Jesus reminds his disciples about the importance of the coming Holy Spirit. You will recall in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, there is a blessed promise that the Old Testament saints clung to. It reads as follows, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will, notice future tense, I will pour out my spirit. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, the scripture reads, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Do you ever find yourself taking the new covenant for granted? Can you imagine if you were numbered among the Old Testament saints and, and the, the, the first day you heard this, that you learned that in the future that there would be a new covenant with the people of God. Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke... Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. And here you see is the essence of the new covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now back to John chapter 15. Jesus is referring to the helper. 
He calls the Holy Spirit the helper. And you'll remember as we studied this back in John chapter 14. The Greek word is it's a little word parakletos. Parakletos translated the helper. Once again, Jesus has already used this phrase parakletos. He used it, he will use it again in John chapter 16, verse 7. And so we'll run into this again next week. The term means this. It means one who comes along beside. It's two Greek words smashed together, and they basically mean one who comes alongside to assist. And I would ask by way of practical application, are you in need of assistance? Are you in need of of some encouragement? Are you in need of instruction? Do you need help and assistance in the Christian life? And of course, the answer to all those questions is a resounding yes. Now, depending on the translation that you have in verse 26, you may see the word helper translated from parakletos. You may see a different translation, and I believe all of these are are adequate translations. Your translation may have the word advocate. Your translation may have the word encourager or exhorter or counselor or comforter. Once again, these are all perfectly legitimate translations. But the most important thing to recognize is Jesus is telling his disciples about whom? The coming Holy Spirit. Now, please remember that the helper, the parakletos, is a person. You may remember the, the, the story I shared about uh, the book I was reading. It was a rather large book by one of my heroes, uh, the Puritan John Owen. And it's just a very plain green cover. And the name of the book is The Holy Spirit. And I remember as I walked into the restaurant in Legrand, I, I laid the book on the counter and went to pay for my, my uh, lunch. And the man behind the counter looked at the book and said, I have one of those. <laughs> That is the wrong thing to say to someone who loves the Holy Spirit. That would be like, if you don't quite, if you're not quite with me, and I can tell some of you aren't, right? You're going to get it in just a second. Husbands, that would be like walking uh, into a store with your wife and having the person at the counter. Those of you that are already with me know what's coming, right? That would be like the guy saying, I got one of those. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like when men call their wives the woman. Or the wife. I don't know about you. That drives me insane. Because my wife is the most important person in my life. She is not the wife. She is not the woman. She is my precious bride. And so men, by way of practical application, your wife is not the wife. Are we on the same page? Your wife is your precious bride who you treasure and love and adored. And that's why I got bent out of shape at the restaurant that day. The Holy Spirit is not a one of those. And I was bold enough to say, uh, the Holy Spirit is not a one of those. The Holy Spirit is a person. And as a person, the Holy Spirit engages in many important ministries and several responsibilities that we will begin to unpack next week as well as we look at John chapter 16, verses 1 to 11. Once again, the Old Testament tells us that the Holy Spirit plays a a very important role in things like creation. The Holy Spirit is involved in creation. The Holy Spirit is involved in the giving of revelation. That is the Word of God. That He empowers the Old Testament saints. 
And we have seen some of the ministries and responsibilities in previous studies as well. We've seen that the Holy Spirit prays for the people of God. The Holy Spirit teaches. The Holy Spirit leads. The Holy Spirit stands alongside the Father as well as the Son. And never let it uh, uh, leave your memory that the Holy Spirit shares all the attributes of God. Name an attribute of God. Omnipotence. Omniscience. Aseity. Love. Justice. Holiness, whatever attribute you can think of that God possesses, the Holy Spirit, you see, possesses that attribute. Why is that? The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, is God. I'm reminded of a, a terrific definition of the Trinity given by Dr. James White. White says this, Within the one being that is God... There exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now this morning, I want you to have take a few minutes to look with me at four very specific realities that the Lord Jesus Christ in one verse shares with his disciples. And I, I have to add at this point, isn't the Word of God rich? I mean, we're going to take, I don't know how long it's going to take because I don't want to guess, but we're going to take quite some time over the next several minutes and just, just dissect verse 26 and see what the Lord Jesus says about the mind-boggling reality of the Holy Spirit. The first one we've already seen. First of all, Jesus says to his disciples that the Holy Spirit will come. Again, will is a future tense, or I should say come is in the future tense. He will come. And as I've already indicated, the third member of the Godhead has existed from all eternity and was actively involved in the lives of the Old Testament saints. But here's what Jesus tells his disciples now. By the way, they understood very well about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had been activated in their lives. That they, they understood, in part, this ministry of the Holy Spirit. But now Jesus says this to his disciples, A new day is dawning. In the not-too-distant future, the Holy Spirit will come. There is a new day when the Holy Spirit will come in great power and, here's the key, permanently indwell in His people. Now this is something that the disciples had no comprehension of. They understood that the Holy Spirit came to, to dwell in the hearts of the Old Testament saints, but never in a permanent way. You see the Spirit coming and you see the Spirit going. And just as a side note, and I, I shared this in the class on the Holy Spirit. Many of you are familiar with the song written by Keith Green, Create in Me a Clean Heart, from Psalm chapter 51. It's one of my favorites. But there's a line in that song, taken from Psalm 51, that if you'll ask Jason, he would tell you that we don't sing that song. or we, Not the song, we sing the song, we don't sing the line. And the line goes like this, King David says, And take not thine Holy Spirit from me. You know why we don't sing that? Because that is not a biblical prayer for a saint in the, in the age of grace and under the terms of the new covenant to pray. Once the Holy Spirit resides in your heart, he's there permanently. You say, but pastor, what if I do something that, that's sinful? 
I hope we all know the answer to that question now. If you do something that's sinful, and by the way, 1 John chapter 1 says, anyone who says he has no sin is a, someone yell it out, liar. And the truth is not in him. So we're all on the same ship, right? We're all on the same ship, heading to the celestial city together, if you're in Christ. When we sin, what do we do? Do we lose the Holy Spirit? We don't lose the Holy Spirit. We may grieve the Holy Spirit, but when we sin, we flee to the cross. We don't do penance. We don't go to the priest. We don't do works. We don't do more ministry. We don't put more money in the offering plate. We run to the cross. And what does Jesus do? He stands as our advocate in our defense. He pleads our case before the Father. And at that point, what must the Father do? What must the Father do? Based on His character, that He is the immutable, He is the unchanging God who never breaks His word. Anyone who sins, if you ask for forgiveness, He must forgive you. And He finds great delight in forgiving His people. And so the disciples were, were not aware yet of what it meant about this, the, the notion of, of a Holy Spirit who would permanently indwell them. Once again, when in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, it's a word that, that points to a, a specific point of time in the future. That is to say that the Holy Spirit... Now, think in terms of the disciples. We're looking in the rearview mirror now, right? Think like a disciple. The Lord Jesus Christ says, He will come at my appointed time. That is, at the Father's appointed time, He will come. And so for the disciples, the coming of the Holy Spirit is a future event. That is, that the the coming of the Holy Spirit will take place at a specific point in time when the disciples would come to understand in the not-too-distant future would be the time of Pentecost. Now, as Baptists, how many of you love Pentecost? Does anyone love Pentecost? Absolutely. We love, you say, but I'm not a Pentecostal. We love Pentecost. Why? Because that's when the Holy Spirit came in great power. All the promises that were, were set forth in the days of the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Joel chapter 2, they were fulfilled at Pentecost. And so, as Baptists, we love Pentecost. And number one, the Holy Spirit will come. That is the first reality I want you to see. That is the first reality that Jesus wanted his disciples to see. The second reality. The second reality that Jesus uncovers here is that the Holy Spirit will proceed from the Father and the Son. And I don't want you to miss the weightiness of the words of Jesus at this point. He promises to send the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus promises something, it will certainly come to pass. That's what the disciples were banking on. He says, when the Helper comes, whom... I, that's Jesus, will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Now, this raises a a bit of a technical question, and I'll only take a minute to, to deal with this question. This is an interesting question, 
That's a huge understatement. But this raises an interesting question that has been debated throughout church history. And the question goes something like this. Did the Spirit proceed from the Father? That's option number one. Or did the Spirit proceed, proceed from the Father and the Son? In the Nicene Creed, the Creed reads as follows. Written in 325 A.D. And... The Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father. You see, the framers of the Nicene Creed pretty much settled the score. The answer that they gave, whether they intended to give it or not, was that the answer to this question that became a hot topic in church history is they said the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now, that's 325 A.D., if you can kind of contextualize that. We're living in 2016, so we're hundreds and hundreds of years ago. 325, the Nicene Creed is written and embraced by the church at this ecumenical council. Then, several years later, in 381, at the Creed of Constantinople, the creed was briefly revised... And it was actually canonized in 589, a couple hundred years later, at the regional council in Toledo, which is now Spain. And here's what was added. It's just a a very small shift, but it's a big one. What was added to the phrase, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, the church fathers added, and the Son. So how do you think the Western church answered the question, from whom did the Spirit proceed? Well, they answer it in in this creed, in Toledo, definitively. They argued this, that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. Now here's the problem. John Frame says it like this. The Eastern church, and when I say Eastern church, think Russian Orthodox Greek Orthodox. I've had the occasion to be in many Russian Orthodox churches in my times in Belarus. An absolutely unbelievable experience. I've actually never seen the Word of God preached in one of those churches, just as a side. But here's what John Frame says. The Eastern Church did not look with favor upon this change and thought it arrogant for the Western churches to alter an ecumenical statement of faith without consulting their Eastern brothers. I would jump in and say, that's probably true. That's probably true. He says the doctrinal issue was one of the main causes of the schism between the Eastern and Western churches that occurred in 1054 and continues to this day. So in 1054, what happens? The Western church and the Eastern church split. I don't know if you remember the funeral of Pope John Paul II. I I watched in absolute fascination as both Western church and Eastern church priests from both traditions shared the same platform. Boy, it, it was a very interesting day, to say the least. And so suffice it to say now that Jesus makes it really clear in my mind to the disciples that the Holy Spirit will proceed from the Father and the Son. Look at the next line. He says, number three, that the Holy Spirit now is the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. That comes from a Greek word that means to be in accord with reality. Facts that correspond to reality. Truthful. Having integrity. 
One writer says that when God is called the truth, this is to be understood in its most comprehensive sense. In other words, everything about God is true. His character is true. His promises are true. His word is true. Isn't that something that we can run to the bank with today? As we live in a world where there's so many lies circulating around us, we know that God and His Word are true. One theologian says it like this, God's truthfulness means that He is the true God, and that all of His knowledge and words are both true and the final standards of truth. And so Jesus refers to the Spirit of truth... He's already referred to the helper or the paraclete, the parakletos, as the spirit of truth in John 14. And once again, we will see him refer to the spirit as the spirit of truth in John chapter 16, verse 13. And as, as I was, as I was uh, refreshing my mind this morning and looking over my notes, I, the thought struck me, isn't it refreshing that, that God is truth? And specifically here, as Jesus relays to his disciples that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Psalm 25, verse 5 says, Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your words is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 51, verse 6, David says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inner man, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Psalm 145, verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The fourth thing that Jesus discusses here with his disciples is that the Holy Spirit now will bear witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it goes without saying that the Holy, the Holy Spirit played an absolutely integral role in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think through it with me. First of all, we remember that Jesus was conceived, how? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We know that the result of the virgin birth was the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit now anointed and empowered Jesus in his earthly ministry. It's a very interesting thing, you see, that from eternity past, the Son has been submissive to the Father. By the way, this is a massive, massive theological debate that is taking place right now. There are two sides of the debate. One side says the Lord Jesus Christ submitted to the Father in the days of his earthly ministry, in the period that we refer to as the incarnation. There's no doubt about that. I don't know anyone that disagrees with that. Here's where the rub lies. There are some theologians, some pastors, some Christians who say Jesus did not submit to the Father in eternity past. I would argue that those theologians are sorely mistaken. And I would argue with the Word of God that Jesus Christ has submitted to the Father from all eternity. That the Holy Spirit has submitted to the Son and the Father from all eternity. And now what happens during Jesus' earthly ministry, something unique happens, is the Lord Jesus Christ now submits to the Holy Spirit. 
You see in the pages of the New Testament that the Holy Spirit also empowers the preaching ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The special mission of the Holy Spirit now is to bear witness about Jesus. I want you to focus in for a second on that little phrase, bear witness. Look at it at the end of verse 26. And the phrase bear witness comes from the Greek word. I'll I'll give you the Greek word because I think you'll be interested. uh, uh, Martyreo. Martyreo. What does that sound like? Martyr. A martyr, that's the word, the English word that, is, that emerges there. And so to bear witness means to testify. It means to, to be a witness. It means to give evidence. If you're a good witness, you speak highly about the one you bear witness to. And that's the, the chief role now of the Holy Spirit. He bears witness to Jesus. Moreover, we see that the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. We'll see that in John 16, verse 14. Jesus says, He, speaking of the Spirit, will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so to glorify, to glorify means to positively acknowledge someone or something. And in this case, it's none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to focus in on that person's qualities, on that person's characteristics, on that person's attributes. And so that's what Jesus is interested in communicating here is to his disciples, that his role is to, to bear witness his role is to serve as a, as a trumpet, if you will. He is the one who will proclaim, he will bear witness to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put, the Holy Spirit wants the world to know Jesus. The Holy Spirit wants the world to understand who Jesus is. And so the Holy Spirit, as a result, he testifies to the great worth, the great beauty, and the excellency of of the Savior. When the word excellently crossed my mind, by the way, that was one of Jonathan Edwards' favorite words. You thought it was wrath? It's not. One of his favorite words was excellency. He also liked the word sweetness. Listen to how Edwards describes this. Christ, as he is God, is infinitely and great and high above all, He is higher than all the kings of the earth, for he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is higher than the heavens and higher than the highest angels of heaven. So great is he that all men, all kings and princes are worms and dust before him. All nations are a drop in the bucket and the light dust of the balance. Yea, the angels themselves are nothing before him. Speaking of Jesus now, he is so high that he is infinitely above any need of us, above our reach, that he cannot be profitable to him, and above our conceptions that we cannot comprehend him. Christ is the creator and great possessor of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign Lord of all. He rules over the whole universe and he does whatever he pleases. His knowledge is without bound. His wisdom is perfect and none can circumvent. His power is infinite. None can resist him. His riches are immense and inexhaustible. His majesty is infinitely awful. Awful. We would say awesome. This... This is the Jesus that the Holy Spirit wants us to know. This 
is the Jesus that the Holy Spirit bears witness to. And so the disciples hear this message from the Lord Jesus. The disciples hear the Lord Jesus will come. He will proceed from the Father and the Son. He is the Spirit of truth. And they learn that the Holy Spirit will bear witness to the excellency of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you agree from this one verse that this indeed is a mind-boggling reality? Now, that mind-boggling reality gives rise to something very important. It gives rise to a momentous responsibility. And that momentous responsibility is unfolded for us in the next verse. Look at verse 27. After Jesus spends all his time in verse 26 talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, now he turns his attention to his disciples. And he turns his attention to you and to me, those of us who bear the name of Christ and are Christ followers. He says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I want you to see one key responsibility. And we're all, I think, mature enough in the faith to know that there are many responsibilities that we have in the Christian life. But this is a big one. This is a big one. That The responsibility before us now starting with the disciples, and now it's passed on to us, is this, is that disciples bear witness about Jesus. You say, "Uh uh-oh, I hear a missions message coming on, perhaps. Disciples bear witness about Jesus. Indeed, it is, I think you would agree with me, a momentous responsibility to be charged to be tasked with the same exact responsibility that the Holy Spirit has. Think about that. The third member of the Godhead is given this charge. He will bear witness to the world about Jesus Christ. Now Jesus says, oh, and by the way, you too. You are called to bear witness to me. Once again, look at the word bear witness. We all know what the word is now. It comes from that Greek word, martyreo, to testify, to bear witness, to, to give witness, to give evidence of, to speak well of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what's fascinating. In verse 27, when Jesus says, you will also bear witness, bear witness in the Greek is written in the present tense, which means this. It means that we are to constantly bear witness. There is, never, there is never a time in our Christian lives when we stop bearing witness. You say, what about vacation? Nope. What about when I get sick? Nope. What about on my deathbed? Nope. What if I'm a new believer and I don't know very much? Nope. We are all called to bear witness from the most junior believer to the most rookie believer to the most mature veteran. We are all called to bear witness to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the amazing reality. Just as the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus, so too the Holy Spirit empowers each of us. There is no difference. There is no distinction. Just as the Holy Spirit. And you think of all that the Holy Spirit did during Jesus' earthly ministry. As he empowered him all the way to the cross. We have that same power at our disposal. As we become martyrs. As we bear witness to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know in the 1st and 2nd and 3rd centuries, the church fathers, 
many of them had a death wish. For, for people in the 21st century, when you hear that, you think, what are they, nuts? They had a death wish. How many of you have a death wish? You're like, I, I want to be a, a martyr for Jesus Christ. I don't know many believers who would stand up and say, yeah, man, sign me up. Where do I go? Indonesia, Iraq, Afghanistan, Russia. Where do I go to be a martyr for Jesus? But in the first, second, and the third centuries, the church fathers counted it an honor to be a martyreo, to be a martyr for the good name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that the Holy Spirit, who empowered Jesus, will empower us as we bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. I've had many discussions with friends over the years about, do you think you would have what it takes to be a martyr? Could you be the next Bonhoeffer? You know, the Bonhoeffer, as he, was, he, as he hung naked in Germany, only happened days before the end of the war. And as I've considered the story of Bonhoeffer, a brave and a courageous man, I've wondered, wow, God... Man, just a few more days and he would have made it. But that is exactly what God sovereignly ordained what took place. And Bonhoeffer died a hero. He died a a martyr, a, a man who gave witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. My own personal conviction is this. Most of us, if we were to raise our hands right now, would say, I don't think I have what it takes. Would anyone be willing to say that? I don't think I have the right stuff. Okay, just me. Two of us. Wow. The rest of you are so brave. Here's my personal conviction. That if, if pushed into the corner, if we had to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ with a gun to our head, I believe that the Holy Spirit would give each of us the ability and the inclination and the courage to be a good martyr for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with this momentous responsibility before us, and this is a huge understatement to call this the momentous responsibility, I want to close by offering five marching orders to make this a reality in your life. What does it mean in the Christian life for, for you and for me to bear witness to Jesus? Well, number one is foundational, and that is that bearing witness about Jesus requires knowing Jesus. In shorthand, that means you need to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian... You cannot bear witness to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, once you're in Christ, what is our responsibility? We get to know Jesus. You remember in John chapter 15, I've had several conversations with with, uh, scattered people here at Christ Fellowship about the notion of being a friend of Jesus. Isn't that something? Jesus, more than once in John 15, refers to the disciples as his friends. We are his friends. And so get to know him. Read his word. Become more familiar with the promises found in God's word. Number two, bearing witness about Jesus involves loving people with the love of Jesus. You remember in John 13, God's word says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Number three, bearing witness about Jesus involves living with integrity. 
I heard a story about a man who went to prison, uh, committed a, a horrific uh, litany of crimes, and, and evidently had become a quote-unquote Christian during his prison days, which of course happens a lot. Praise the Lord for that. But this particular inmate was not repentant, and he was still inclined to uh, engage in those crimes. And so I heard one prominent Bible teacher who kind of got in his mug, and he said, Stop teaching the Bible. Seriously, stop teaching the Bible. Stop telling people about Jesus. Why? Because you're a bad martyr. You're a bad martyreo. You're a bad witness. And so bearing witness about Jesus involves living with integrity. Ephesians 4 says that as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Francis Schaeffer, before he died, called Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, the final apologetic. You say, Pastor, I'm not very good at apologetics. Great. Live a godly life. Live a a humble life filled with integrity. You will be a tremendous apologist for the namesake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, bearing witness about Jesus involves this. Get ready. It's like a novel approach. It involves telling people about Jesus. It involves telling people about Jesus. You said, I knew it. I knew it was coming. The the missions message was coming. And so be it. You may be familiar with the words of St. Francis Assisi, who said this. And this has been popular for, for many, many years. He said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. If I can remember correctly, I think I had that on my computer at one time. I've seen it on posters. I've used it in sermons. But in recent days, I've come to this conclusion. That is not good theology. I know what he's trying to say. Back up your words with your actions. But listen again. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Could I say something very bold and blatant? If you're not using words, you're not preaching the gospel. If you're not proclaiming Christ, you're not preaching the gospel. Colossians 1.28 says, Him, speaking of Jesus, Him we proclaim, warning everybody and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. How do people get mature in Christ? They must hear the gospel proclaimed. They hear it from a pulpit like this. They hear it in the workplace. They hear it on the basketball court. They hear it in the hallway at school. They hear it on the university campus less and less and less. As gospel proclamation is being minimized and marginalized, but as God's people, we stand and we choose to obey God, not men, is access. And so we make that commitment to proclaiming the gospel. Paul says like this in Ephesians 6, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth. Isn't that interesting? Remember what St. Francis said? Preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And Paul says that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Notice he doesn't say live the gospel. We 
proclaim the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Romans chapter 10 is so convicting for me as I've been in discussions over, over the last several years of, do we need to send missionaries? The answer is, would someone yell it out? Yes. For crying out loud, yes, right? Do we need to send missionaries? Well, if God's chosen them, they will come. No, God chooses them, but he calls us to proclaim the message of the gospel. So Romans 10 says it like this. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone what? Preaching. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Fifth and finally, bearing witness about Jesus depends upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Here Jesus is laying this, this wonderful promise before them that the Holy Spirit will come. And it won't be very long from their perspective when that momentous event takes place. Where the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified, he shows up and over 500 people see the the, the bodily resurrected Savior. What happens? The days of Pentecost and these things all come to pass. But notice in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we find another promise that applied to the disciples then and also applies to us now. That you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. It's like Jesus is saying, you will be my witnesses in Whatcom County and Washington and the Pacific Northwest and America and all the ends of the world. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What the disciples anticipated, we now embrace. We now have the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. As we close, I I hope this morning, I hope that you agree with me that this indeed is a mind-boggling reality. I hope that the mind-boggling reality of the Holy Spirit will, will sink deep into the core of your heart. Because each of us who are Christ followers, whether we're young in the Lord or whether we're great veterans in the faith, each of us have a momentous responsibility to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my challenge this morning. Is where, where is God calling you to be a witness? Is he calling you to be a witness in the workplace? Is he calling you to be a witness on your campus this fall? High school students, junior high school students, grade school students, college students. Is he calling you to be a witness in in your neighborhood? Is he calling you to be a witness to an unreached people group? To go, as the Christians have discussed, about basically uh, moving their whole family to the country of Mexico. And finding people that have never heard about Jesus and sharing the gospel message with them. Most of you know that I am, I am deeply moved and inspired by figures in church history. One of them is a man that is not as well known as people like uh, Martin Luther or Spurgeon or Edwards or some of these other folks. But John Huss was a man who I believe understood our momentous responsibility to bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
John Huss attended the University of Prague at the age of 16. He received his Bachelor of Arts in 1394 and a Bachelor of Theology in 1396, and he was subsequently ordained as a priest in the year 1401 as a Roman Catholic. One year later, John Huss was appointed the dean of the philosophical faculty and chosen to be the the rector of the university. And during that time, he served as a preacher at Bethlehem Chapel, not far from the university, but something happened in the heart of Huss. Huss now had the audacity to publicly condemn the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. And so, he was arrested He was thrown into a dark hole at the opening of a sewer, literally. Thrown into a hole in the sewer in November of 1414, rather. He spent, count this, eight months in that smelly hole. He spent eight months in that pit. And this godly man was tortured and ultimately burned at the stake along with his books on July the 6th. 1415. Now, the name Huss means goose. How would you like it if your name meant goose? I suppose there's worse. But prior to his death, John Huss penned these poignant and providential words. And I want you to think of the date of his death, 1415. And think about church history. He said before he died, Today you were burning a goose. However, A hundred years from now, you will be able to hear a swan sing. You will not burn it, and you will have to listen to him. Martin Luther believed that he was the fulfillment of that prediction, that he was that swan who came, and they did not burn him, and the world had to listen to him. John Huss fearlessly and faithfully confronted the opponents of his with God's word. And a total eclipse of the sun delayed the council that eventually condemned him to die. And when he arrived at the execution ground that they referred to as the devil's place, John Huss knelt down and he prayed. For the last time, he was given an opportunity to recant, to take away all of his teaching, to take away his criticism of the Roman Catholic Church, his condemnation of Roman Catholic theology. Huss offered these final words with God-centered resolve. He said this, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought nor preached except with one intention of winning people, if possible from their sins. In the truth of the gospel, I have written, taught, and preached. Today, I will gladly die. And here's what the onlookers heard as Huss burned in the flames before them. They heard him singing the Psalms. Here's a man who bore witness to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that we too would bear witness to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, this is a momentous responsibility. That as we as God's people rely on the Holy Spirit to empower us, may he he send us into the world 
to tell the nations about the most important message that you could ever share. There are many things that we could share to people. There are many ways we could help people. But the most important thing we can share with the nations is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. My challenge to you is this. Where will you bear witness? Where will you bear witness to this momentous responsibility? Let's pray. Father, we're humbled this morning uh, to learn uh, this amazing truth. God, sometimes it's hard to put ourselves in the place of the disciples, but they must have been astonished as they sat at the feet of their Savior. And Lord, they must have been more astonished as all these things came to pass at Pentecost. And we're in the amazing position, God, of now looking in the rearview mirror. We're in the amazing position of seeing all these things in a way that the disciples could never have have really understood. But now we see uh, much clearer. And I pray that we would embrace these realities. I pray that we would lean into the Holy Spirit. I pray that we would depend upon the Holy Spirit, reminded that he indwells the followers of Christ permanently and personally. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower uh, boys and girls. I pray that you'd empower men and women, that you'd empower uh, the followers of Christ here at this church, that we would be uh, good witnesses to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we want to see you do a a great work in our community. We want to see uh, people trust the Lord Jesus Christ to turn from their sins and to trust a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. May the work of the cross be emblazoned upon our hearts. May you give us the ability, may you give us the inclination to be good foot soldiers, all for the sake of the gospel. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.